This is loudspeaker. Please don't go. I need you so. I. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the podcast about finding joy through feminism and living your best feminist life. Although today's episode, I must say, is not a very joyful one, but it is fascinating and urgent, possibly more urgent than it's ever been. My guest is Dr. Heidi Byrick, Executive Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer at the nonprofit organization Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. And to be fully transparent, I am on the board of this organization. Heidi is an international expert on far-right extremism, and I invited her on to talk about the role of women within these anti-democratic movements, as well as the relationship between feminism, misogyny, and extremism. And I have to issue a big content warning for this one because, due to the nature of the groups we'll be discussing, you are going to hear some really disturbing themes and violent language related to racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, anti-immigrant sentiment, sexism, etc., pretty much you name it. But we're also going to talk about how you can counter these movements, so I hope you'll stay tuned. One distinction I wanted to draw right off the bat, and Heidi is going to talk about this as well, is the difference between white supremacy as a system or a culture, and white supremacy as a political movement, which is also referred to as white nationalism. So for a long time, the term white supremacy was used to describe hate groups like the KKK, groups that explicitly articulated the idea that white people were superior to people of color. But as our understanding of racial justice has become more nuanced, scholars and activists are helping us to understand that Due to the fact that the origins of the United States lie in the genocide of indigenous people and the brutal kidnapping and exploitation of black Africans, known as chattel slavery, our systems and institutions reflect white supremacy thinking and culture, resulting in widespread inequities that are hard to address because these systems evolve and adapt to uphold whiteness when we try to reform them. They might not be explicitly racist anymore, but that racism still exists within the system. White supremacist groups or white nationalist groups, on the other hand, have very explicit racist policy goals. They want separate white states. They want to make people of color, LGBTQ people, and black and brown and Muslim immigrants illegal. And in many cases, they support using both legal and extra-legal means to further these policy goals. So I just wanted to make that clear as you're listening. White supremacy as a system and a culture is what we have embedded in the U.S. White supremacist or white nationalist movements are what we're talking about today when we're discussing far-right groups and political parties gaining traction in our communities and around the world. Okay, after that far too long introduction, it is my pleasure to share with you my conversation with the incredibly knowledgeable and charming Dr. Heidi Byrick. Heidi, thank you so much for joining me today on Feminist Hot Dog. It is such an honor to have you and to get to see your face on a Thursday morning. <laughs> I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much. To start off with, can you tell us a little bit about you and your career path, which I think is kind of a unique and interesting story? What led you to decide to study 
extremism and to pursue fighting hate as a career? Well, to some extent, it was a bit of a fluke, I must admit. Um, I was, you know, one of those people who was in, you know, getting in grad school forever and ever and ever. I had gotten a master's degree in economics, master's degree in political science, and then went on to do a PhD in poli sci. And my expertise was really in like fascist movements in places like Latin America and Spain. I wrote my dissertation about the Spanish constitutional court dismantling the dictator Franco's legacy. So it wasn't exactly U.S. extremism that I was focusing on, but of course, elements of extremism uh, in other places. And when I finished my doctorate, I went out on the job market and my husband and I had difficulty finding you know, jobs in, in the same place. And he got an offer from Auburn University. And I thought to myself, oh my God, the Southern Poverty Law Center is in Alabama, right? Montgomery, Alabama. And, and the reason I knew about SPLC was because when I was in high school back in Southern California in the 1980s, the Law Center had sued a really ugly hate group that was functioning in the area called uh, White Aryan Resistance. And some of my friend's brothers actually got sucked into that skinhead scene. You know, the, the community I was living in, which was right next door to where the leader of that group was, we got flyered with horrible Nazi type stuff. So I Googled SPLC and they had an internship available and I applied for it and got hired. And I was really thinking at the time that I would do this for a year and then I'd, you know, jump back into getting a job in academia. But I found the advocacy work, the fact that I was actually doing something in the real world to, to stop these hate groups from proliferating their ideas or to try to break them up. That was so radically different than publishing on the Spanish Constitutional Court, right, where I thought, you know, it's important work, but, you know, 12 people are going to read it or maybe over time, 50 people are going to read it. And this was actually having extreme real world impact. So that hooked me and I never left. Right. I just I stayed for 20 years, basically building up the program at SPLC on these hate groups, coming up with new strategies and working on journalism, basically, you know, to expose them. And I'm still doing that work, although I'm not at SPLC. I'm just at a new organization and looking at it from, you know, a slightly different lens, a transnational lens. But that's what happened. And uh, I haven't regretted one second having left academia. And tell us a little bit about the organization that you co-founded and are working with now. Sure. So myself and a long-term colleague, Wendy Vi, co-founded an organization about eight months ago called the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. And what we're doing is there's been an increasingly international aspect to white supremacy. You know, when I started at the SPLC back in the late 90s, neo-Nazi groups, Klan groups, and so on, they were fully domestic. Sometimes they only cared what was going on in their state or even their county. But at this point, the whole white supremacist network is internationalized. The main groups have chapters in multiple countries. They work online in networks that have no respect for borders. And the ideas of white supremacy, the same set of ideas, which is basically that white people are being genocided in their home countries. I mean, it's a ridiculous position, but this is what they believe, has motivated terrorist attacks from Christchurch in New Zealand to synagogues in Germany to the attack at the uh, Walmart in El Paso, the Pittsburgh synagogue. It's a sprawling transnational network. And if you want to do something about it, 
you have to look at the problem from that direction. And, and it's not just about white supremacy, I should say. The anti-LGBTQ movement is international now. That's one that's largely exported from the US into places like Europe, Eastern Europe, Russia. But you know, all of these movements seem to be breaching boundaries, which you know, social media makes easier, basically. And I know that the term white supremacy has had a cultural shift of its own and that now we're, we're talking a lot more in the United States about white supremacy as a system and a culture as opposed to movement-based white supremacy or white nationalism. Can you talk a little bit about the distinction between those things? Because they, you know, the white nationalist movement has very specific political goals. And I think sometimes there's a little bit of crossover in people's minds between those two things. Can you tease out that distinction for us? Yeah, I mean, you really, we have to make a distinction between America's longstanding white supremacist culture, systems, oppression, basically, that comes with that thinking, and, you know, violent white supremacist movements, or as they call themselves now, white nationalists. It's a term that they created, that they they rebranded themselves to make them sound less scary. You know, not long ago, they also tried to rebrand themselves as alt-right or alternative right, and that didn't hold. But the white supremacist culture of this country is tied to enslavement, segregation, Jim Crow, which has rooted in this country things like mass incarceration. I mean, the list of things I could talk about at what people of color face in this country that's distinctly different from white folks like myself is massive. And the inequitable outcomes of that in terms of education, housing, health care, on and on and on. That, that's part of white supremacist culture rooted in our history. These movements that I'm talking about, white supremacist movements or white nationalist movements, are also a part of that, right, an outcome of that. They actually frame themselves as more appropriately historically accurate. In other words, they tap into America's horrible history of oppression, in particular of Black people, and try to make the argument we need to go back to that because that's when America was great. But they're really different from all these cultural things that have allowed, you know, allow people like me, a white woman from the upper middle class, to have privileges that are just so totally different than all, all people of color in this country, immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. So people do need to think about those differently and they get confused at times. Another element that I'd like to ask you about to clarify before we get into talking about the misogyny that runs through all of these groups, which is why I invited you on the show. One of the things that confused me for a long time until I learned more about it and looked at it more deeply was how anti-Semitism fit into white nationalist ideology, because I didn't understand, you know, like in my mind, I'm like, well, Jewish people are white. So why do these folks who are so virulently racist also target members of the Jewish community. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, anti-Semitism in some ways is the founding position of almost all white supremacist movements. N not all, but almost all. Uh, the idea that Jews are somehow ma manipulating political societies to their own benefit, it courses through white supremacy, courses through neo-Nazism, obviously, worship of Hitler, skinhead movements, the Klan, it goes on and on. And if you find anti-Semitism, you're probably going to find every other form of bigotry, meaning anti-Black, anti-woman, 
anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, anti-LGBTQ. It, it's a foundational thing. And it also speaks to the fact that these movements are inherently conspiratorial because what they're alleging the Jews are about is somehow manipulating systems. And look, this kind of hatred goes back literally a couple thousand years. I mean, it goes back to the founding of the Catholic Church when we're talking about Europe. This idea that Jews are somehow destroying societies through some kind of manipulation. They've been blamed for communism and capitalism. They've been blamed for globalism. That's sort of one of the big things you hear nowadays. Anytime somebody is alleging that there is some kind of a global, you know, unformed conspiracy destroying people's lives, you tend to find, you know, Jews at the back of it. Lately, George Soros, the liberal philanthropist, has been the one who's blamed for it. Or Jewish bankers, right, manipulating the system. So if you find anti-Semitism, you're going to find everything else, basically. Now, that said, there are a few white nationalist organizations that actually consider Jews to be white and aren't anti-Semitic, but they are by far in the minority. I remember having a conversation with somebody about this recently, and they were like, I thought we pretty much had kind of moved past that, like didn't really see that as an issue anymore. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. Like we cannot sleep on anti-Semitism in any in any realm because it, that belief is so embedded not only in in these movements, but actually, you know, even in the left. I interviewed Loretta Ross recently, and she has done so much in her career. And one of the things that she did was to work with folks who were trying to leave the extremist movement in the 1980s. And she did, she was um, also a data researcher who really tried to link the research that she was doing on anti-Black extremism and misogyny, anti-abortion extremism. And she noted that at that time, it was a very male-dominated field, and that as, as a woman, that she sometimes had some trouble kind of getting her voice heard. And I just wondered if that was still the case, and in what ways do you find your gender being reflected back to you in the work that you do, or, or maybe how that's shown up over the course of your career? Well, I would say that when I started doing this work, there were almost no women doing this kind of work. There were a, a tiny handful of people. And, you know, since a lot of people who study terrorism, which kind of overlaps with studying this type of extremism, the terrorism field is dominated by white males. It still is dominated by white males. And since a lot of these people come out of political science as a field, that is one of the most male dominated of the white male dominated, I should say, of the social sciences. I just looked up before getting on here with you what the percentage is in the tenured ranks of women today in political science. It's about 24%, even though 50% of the people who are in grad school, actually a little more, that graduate with that degree are actually women, most likely white women, right? But the point is, is that the female presence in this world is very, very small. On top of that, the number of people who were doing this work back in the 1990s, and I can't imagine what it was like in the 1980s, was teeny tiny. There have been pretty big shifts in focus on this issue just in the recent past. I'm sure the Trump administration had a whole lot to do with attracting more people to this field and focusing on right-wing extremism. It just wasn't something much of interest for a very long time, except for terrorism researchers who would, 
who oftentimes would end up going into government and end up on the National Security Council or, you know, places like that. And they, of course, after 9-11, favored looking at Islamic extremism as opposed, as opposed to right-wing extremism. I do think there is a little bit of a shift going on right now. There are some really good women dealing with right-wing extremism. I'm thinking of Cynthia Miller Idris at American University who talks about how to de-radicalize people. She has a program called Peril in a Lab that works on that issue. Kathleen Ballou, who's a professor at uh, the University of Chicago and wrote a really interesting book on how the militarization of the United States from Vietnam on led to increases of members of white supremacist groups and militia type groups. And she's doing that work. Mia Bloom is a researcher. I think she's at Georgia State. And she does work, for example, on women in Islamic extremist movements, but also in white supremacist movements. So we're seeing a little bit of a shift, but it's still the minority of people doing work in this field. It's, it's white male dominated. There is so much to say about hate and extremism right now. I know it's impossible to summarize it, but as someone who has been in this world for a long time, what are some of the trends that you've noticed in the last few years? I mean, obviously the election of Donald Trump didn't necessarily change everything, but it definitely shone a spotlight on some of this activity and also emboldened a number of the players that you've probably been familiar with for a long time, emboldening them by even like bringing them into the executive branch. So what are some of the highlights that people really need to know about to understand more about these movements? Well, I would say in the last, let's say five years, two, two significant things happened. One was Donald Trump and the fact that he used his Twitter account to highlight things like QAnon conspiracy theories, racism, misogyny. You know, he reposted neo-Nazi accounts. He talked about this false attack on white farmers in South Africa. I mean, he just, he pushed every single racist, xenophobic idea you could imagine. And of course he installed in the administration people from hate groups like the Federation for American Immigration Reform, ran that terrible agenda against immigrants in this country, against Muslims with the Muslim ban. And all of this had a sanctioning effect on white supremacists and made it more, made their ideas appear more normal. You know, social media has got its own problems that helped all this along, but um, but that was that's a big thing. So he emboldened them, he helped grow their ranks, he, injected their ideas right into the center of power and the center of politics. He mainstreamed them. And in that way, he radicalized sections of the American public, in particular into anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim ideas and anti-LGBTQ. And I guess you could say anti-woman because he was pretty terrible on that as well. But he sort of radicalized a lot of people in that. And we stand now, after five years, with somewhere, um, you know, between 10 and 12 million people, for example, who believe in QAnon conspiracies. You know, there's a faction of the United States that has been radically altered by what Donald Trump did. As the bookend to his time in office, I think this may be the most scary thing in terms of violence or, or the biggest change from all the years that I watched extremist movements in the United States. The January 6th Capitol insurrection it wasn't just about the fact that hundreds of people undertook this terrible thing at Trump's direction. What was really notable about it is we had 
people from movements that never worked together, actually kind of hated each other, all together in the Capitol storming, meaning white supremacists and neo-Nazis were there and militia members were there from groups like the Oath Keepers and Three Percenters. Those two movements did not used to interact. They had different goals, different political agendas, and the militias used to claim, not always the case, but would claim that they weren't racist, they weren't white supremacists, their issue was with the federal government. And so they didn't want to have anything to do with neo-Nazis. Well, that's no longer the case. Also, Donald Trump helped racialize the militia movement, made it very anti-immigrant, very anti-Muslim. So their ideas dovetail now with white supremacy in a way they didn't. But adding to those ranks were conspiracy theorists, not just QAnon. There's always all this election conspiracy stuff under Trump and other issues. So we got a bunch of conspiracy theorists working with militia people, working with white supremacists. And then what is perhaps most notable is the largest chunk of the people who stormed the Capitol, as far as people can tell, were actually just regular old Trump supporting conservatives, the MAGA people, right? And, and those are people who I don't believe five years ago would have been hanging out with neo-Nazis. So there's like a new social movement that's been developed in this country and it crosses a lot of political lines. And I worry that this new kind of coalition exists that's a lot more numerous, is it, you know, millions of people are attracted to and they're willing to work together. What does that mean for our country? And of course, they're all anti-democratic essentially. So we have a force that you know believes this entire system is corrupt, our democracy is BS, voting doesn't count. I mean, that's, that's a scary thing. And that is way different than anything I saw up until Trump came into office. I wanna shift a little bit to talking about misogyny and how that shows up in not just the white supremacist groups, but to some degree, I mean, misogyny and toxic masculinity go hand in hand. And what you're saying is that you see groups that didn't necessarily find common ground before now are finding common ground. And I'm wondering how misogyny sort of does or doesn't show up in terms of that overlap. It's not necessarily the first thing people think of when they think of white nationalists or patriot groups or other anti-democratic groups. But hatred of women and the desire to control them is definitely there. Can you expand on that a little bit? In the way I talked about anti-Semitism earlier as a, like a foundational issue that crosses all lines, the same is true of misogyny. It's taken different forms. I'll talk about that in a second over, over the years. But it is always there. I would argue it's always there in all far-right movements. Misogyny in the neo-Nazi world, let's say, there's been a shift over the last decade, I'd say from 2008 on. Before that, in the 1990s, in these movements in the early 2000s, women are never considered equals of any kind ever possible in any of these movements. However, in that earlier era, women were venerated in this kind of weird paternalistic, misogynistic way, right? As the mothers of Aryan babies, they were depicted you know, in a way that I consider cheesy, but like, you know, blonde women, you know, standing in a cornfield, their hair whipping through the wind, children on, on their hands. And, and they were sort of venerated in that weird way, right? Because they were going to be, they're the ones who are bringing the next generation. Of course, they're not equals. They're there to give birth to babies and take care of the home. And it's like, you know, barefoot in the kitchen sort of stereotypes, but they were to be respected, right? For their role. That has 
completely changed since the rise of the faction of white nationalism called the alt-right. They call themselves that. They, <laughs> their language towards women describes them as sluts and bitches and whores. It's overtly demeaning. You know, there's a whole lot of sort of body shaming in this, ridicule. It's, it's really actually kind of gross and contrasts greatly with that earlier era. So the movements now, white supremacist types, are like crassly misogynistic. It's, and it's a really weird shift that most people mark as having started online with the Gamergate controversy, which was this attack on women in gaming online that some of our prominent neo-Nazis today, people like the folks who created Daily Stormer, this horrible neo-Nazi site, they came up through Gamergate. And it was just vicious online attacks against women. So that's, that is a huge shift in the treatment of women in, in this movement and a kind of a shocking one actually. And it's infused through all kinds of things. Like for, for folks who've been paying attention to the Proud Boys, which is this group that's only been around for a few years, founded by a Canadian, Gavin McInnes, who also co-founded Vice News. The Proud Boys are all about misogyny and demeaning women and about celebrating the kind of toxic masculinity, fighting, street fighting and all of this. And I just think that that's a fundamental shift that has occurred that I frankly didn't expect, but now it's throughout all of these movements. And, you know, the thing about the militias, which is a little bit different, is that they're so male dominated and so white male dominated that it's almost like women don't exist in that realm. It's slightly different than this, you know, abusive treatment of women. And then the other thing that came up in the last few years that didn't exist before is this incel community you know, involuntary celibates, which actually started from real people who were having trouble getting dates and concerned about the fact that they hadn't had sex and they had all these insecurities about this, and then was taken over by this sewage of hatred against women and now celebrates, for example, Elliot Roger, right, who killed a bunch of women at the UC Santa Barbara campus in 20, I think 2014. He's called, you know, St. Elliot online. There was another attack directly against women in Toronto by a member of the incel movement. And it is just about misogyny. I mean, that's all that these people are about. And, you know, there've been other attacks connected to these people. So we now have domestic terrorism that specifically targets women. And it's not as though we, there weren't attacks like this in the past, but the drumbeat of attacks, the number of attacks is something really new. So we go from this kind of gross worship of white women as this like shining example of ideal femininity, which completely is racist and completely strips people of their humanity and shifts to this gross, degrading, overtly oppressive narrative about women. And somewhere in between, you actually do have women who join these movements. So I'm, I'm curious about that. Women do play an active role. What does their participation look like? What was the appeal for them? It's always an interesting question. And there's a lot of work that's been done on women in the Klan going all the way back to the 1920s. In the case of the Klan, women have long played what they call, an, they're usually called like auxiliary clans or auxiliary chapters. Women have played a role in helping the organization function. 
So those domestic things that were prized, you know, in this kind of fake femininity thing and raising the kids were also prized as trying to keep these organizations going along. So women played the role of the cooking and the cleaning and the putting on the events. And, and so they were secondary, but yet in a way essential to allowing these groups to function. That has been something that has been true for a very long time in hate groups. But the number of women involved is, is always kind of minuscule, right? It's just, it's very, very small. So prior to the latest nastiness when it comes to women, most organizations had had some kind of auxiliary chapter for women or role for women that was in this sort of secondary organizing, keeping people happy, making the food sort of role. Rarely did they play a leadership role. I mean, there have been some. April Gady, for example, was a prominent member of the National Alliance for years, a very strong voice on all kinds of issues. She raised her daughters into the movement. They're out now, Lynx and Lamb Gady. She even had them do go around the country and sing like neo-Nazi and racist songs. Oh, were that was they were they Prussian Blue? Yes, Prussian Blue. Prussian Blue got out. Oh, I'm I'm very happy. Completely, completely out, you know, anti-racist, feminist, like they've they've completely changed their lives around. So there've always been figures like April Gady, but they're never that prominent. What they get out of this has always been semi-confusing to me. But when I have talked to formers, female formers who've been in these movements, not they weren't prominent in these movements. When I've talked to them, they usually describe themselves as having gotten involved because of their relationships with particular men. That it was that what drew them into it. They weren't necessarily in there because they believed all the ideas of the various um, hate groups, but they just kind of, you know, they, they went along. And I hate to say that because I'm not trying to say that they don't have agency, but this is the way they described their relationship to these organizations. You know, I went one time to an event in a Florida state park with a bunch of neo-Nazis. It was a, a Viking <laughs> celebration. It's really strange. You know, they threw hatchets and did all kinds of weird stuff. It was like a barbecue. And I sat at the table with the Klan women because that's where the women sat. And the interesting thing was, is the men were engaging in a lot of kind of terrible racist talk and attacking of Jews and these bizarre feats of strength. The conversation at the table, we also handled putting the food out and whatnot, was really about children and family and kind of normal things that you might hear from from anyone else. So it, it showed the secondary status of women, but also the way they kind of weren't that into it, right? They were just... I don't know how to describe it. They were there, but they weren't really a part of it. But, you know, that doesn't apply for everyone. April Gady is a great example of somebody who was a true white supremacist leader. Now, when it comes to these rabidly misogynistic groups of recent years, I'm thinking of the Daily Stormer website and its, its folks, the Proud Boys, the Rise Again movement, which was a neo-Nazi group out of Southern California. You don't, women are either banned or just not really present. Yeah, and Proud Boys doesn't have, there were women who argued they wanted to be part of the Proud Boys or wanted to create affiliates. It's just basically not allowed. So they're a bit absent. But the other big transnational group called Generation Identity has chapters in a bunch of countries. It is the main organization that pushes the idea that white people are being replaced in their home countries. They have sort of gone back to the old femininity of women. Like uh, there's a woman, Brittany Pettibone Selner, 
who is the wife of the unofficial leader of this group, Martin Selner, who's an Austrian. And she seems very much like the old ways of femininity, raising children, being part of the home. It's, it's interesting that you can have the rabid misogyny going on in some groups and then a return to that kind of femininity, Aryan motherhood. Actually, it sounds just like what Hitler described of women, right? Yeah, it's like the, the flip side of, of the misogyny coin. It's totally misogynistic, but it's cast in this glowing light that is somehow it's a benefit to these women because they're just being held up on this pedestal when in fact they're just being completely stripped of all agency. Exactly. And they demonize other women, right? They demonize liberal women. They demonize feminists. They think that, you know, people like me don't understand how much I've given up, right? That I've, right, like, yeah. If you're gay or if you're a woman of color <laughs> yeah. or if you, you know, didn't have children, you're just worthless. Exactly. You mentioned Identity Europa. Can you go into a little bit more detail about the narrative about women and how that intersects with the Great Replacement Theory? Yeah, in, in that movement. So the, the basics of the Great Replacement Theory is there's some sort of a plot going on involving often Jews definitely liberals, globalists, to import immigrants, non-white immigrants, into places that were historically white. So Europe, Australia, New Zealand, the U.S., Canada, I mean, you get the idea. And that there's this plot going on, and we're all being either genocided or completely replaced, hence the Great Replacement. And in that realm, in that movement that believes that, women are there to try to stop the Great Replacement. Right. The, the highest requirement is to produce more white babies that will then allow white culture and Western civilization as they see it to survive. And I think that's why that particular movement has gone back to those old ideas of the woman with the children hanging on her hands and so on, because it is for them the solution to this imagined massacre of white people. And, and so that probably makes sense. You know, when you talk about the neo-Nazi groups like the Proud Boys and whatnot, they're not thinking about what the future of Western civilization is. And, and that is actually what Identity Europa and Generation Identity are all about. And so they want to produce more offspring. What have been some of the consequences for women in places where you see these far right candidates gaining power. So, you know, Donald Trump in the United States, the president of Poland, whose name, uh, how do you pronounce his name? Andres Duda? Yeah, Duda. Yeah, you, you got it. Andres Duda in Poland, Jair Pulsarano in Brazil. There's an, a disturbingly long list, actually, of far right candidates and leaders right now. So that is certainly not helping curb the power and visibility of these groups. What are some of the consequences for women in the countries where these movements have moved from the fringes into mainstream politics? Well, I would say the consequences have been relatively dire, actually, for women and for, in particular, LGBTQ people in, in all these places. So this, the wedding of social conservatism, right, which is anti-abortion, anti-women deciding what to do with their bodies, and celebrates women in the home and denigrates other gender identities, you know, and anything that doesn't fit the model of the, what they call the natural family, right? Mom, dad, probably in their world, preferably multiple children. And 
all of these places, you know, Trump, Trump tried to do these things as well. You know, he restricted access to abortion in other countries and our foreign aid programs. He didn't highlight issues related to women in this country. Look at our healthcare system. It's like a disaster in the United States. He cut protections uh, for the LGBTQ population, you know, uh, all, all kinds of terrible things affecting women and that population under the guise of religious freedom. That same structure is occurring in places like Poland right now, where the government is frankly not just anti-LGBTQ and anti-Semitic in its policies, it's also anti-woman, right? They basically tried to ban all abortions just now. So women have lost control of their reproductive freedom. And you know, by doing that, you're also kicking women down a notch, right? They're not players in the decision-making of places like Poland right now, unless they have you know, very far-right ideas. In Brazil, it's been very much the same trend in terms of reproductive freedom, advancement policies that work to help women and girls in terms of education, furthering their careers. All these kinds of things are just being taken off the policy agenda or worse, policies are being passed that are harmful. Victor Orban's Hungary is another place like that. They have recently Professors who were teaching women's studies, for example, have lost their careers or who were teaching about the history of the LGBTQ movement have been kicked out of universities. So we see these real effects on women, <laughs> their ability to succeed, their ability to secure health care, their rep reproductive freedom. They're really their voice in those democracies is being sorely diminished. And that is the price that has been paid by the rise of Trumpian figures in, in multiple countries. So it's not just, you know, people think of Poland, they think, oh my God, the LGBTQ community is being, you know, harassed and victimized in these LGBTQ free zones. Jews are being denigrated. Women are right there in that same spot being affected by those policies and by those far right governments. And it's, it actually explains why we have to highlight, I mean, one of the goals of GAFI, my new organization, is to make sure that intersectionality is pounded every single time. Because if we leave any population off the list of those who are being oppressed, we're forgetting a big piece of the pie. Right. What, what if you're a Jewish lesbian? Yeah. You are really suffering in Poland right now. That's right. It's a horrible situation. And frankly, anywhere you find one of these bigotries, let's say anti-Semitism or anti-woman, you tend to find the whole lot, right? Mm -hmm. All the rest of them come with it. Wow. So what recourse do we have as people who value multicultural, pluralistic, democratic societies? I mean, it, I hear you talking and I've you know, obviously followed this, these, these trends myself and it can feel a little hopeless sometimes. You're on the on the front lines of I'm um, trying to fight this stuff. What are the strategies? Well, I mean, the simplest one is always voting. <laughs> if you have the right to the vote and you can access the vote, which is always a problem in, in multiple countries. And we can see the results of that just with Trump being voted out of office here in the United States, that you can get an entirely new policy agenda that doesn't think this way from voting. But that's a piece of the pie, but not the whole pie. Frankly, if the social media companies don't deplatform hate speech, conspiracy mongering, you know, lies about a whole host of things, whether it's vaccines, elections, et cetera, if we don't get a handle on that space, 
this stuff will just continue to proliferate and leaders like Bolsonaro in Brazil or the there's a racist political party in particular against Muslims and uh, immigrants in Germany called the Alt Alternative for Germany, which has been picking up larger and larger shares of the vote there. These people thrive on social media. They use it as a way to weaponize their base, get their issues out there. It allows them to go around any kinds of policies that might apply to like TV and radio that don't allow extremist speech. So if we don't do something about the social media space, we do nothing. So I, you know, I think it's very important for all of us to speak out when we see hate online. And if you can get involved in efforts to demand tech accountability, whether that's writing to your legislators, that's being involved in campaigns like Color of Change does great campaigns against anti-Black racism online, for example. You know, there's a lot of efforts like that. And that has got to be job number one that that's dealt with. I also think that the fact that, in, for example, in the United States, this applies in other places, the fact that hate crimes aren't taken seriously, and I'm not talking about necessarily increasing incarceration with hate crimes. I'm talking about getting data so that we know how much of this is happening. Because look, a lot of hate crimes are committed by very young people. You throw them in prison, you're basically guaranteeing that they're gonna be racist when they come out because our prison system is so deeply racist. But you do want diversion programs and you wanna know where these things are happening so that you can treat it as a social problem that, that you can address. I also think for you know, regular folks that you know, speaking out in your own community that you want a community that's welcoming and diverse is actually a big deal. And um, for those who are interested, if you go to the Not In Our Town website that does all kinds of events like this, you can see some really positive stuff that can happen on the local level or the state level, and that matters. But when it comes to overseas and the connections with all these groups overseas and whatnot, we need a better foreign policy that does not have the U.S. government with all its power and prestige allowing these things to happen. So I was really thrilled to see the Biden administration right out of the gate say that the State Department will now work for LGBTQ rights and will no longer take the positions on women's health care that the Trump administration did. It's going to have a big impact. You've been in this world for, as you said, over 20 years. Does studying and tracking these groups ever depress you and how do you cope with that? I get asked this question all the time. I mean, look, it is terrible, terrible stuff. And sometimes it's really hard to stomach. I mean, I can't tell you how painful it was to watch the, the live stream of the Christchurch shooting. I mean, it was just traumatizing. And, and I think a lot of Americans felt that watching the Trump impeachment and the video that was played, especially on the first day where all that was pieced together again. I mean, many of us might have seen it while it was happening on January 6th, but it was a very jarring and traumatic thing to, to watch it again. On the other hand, you know, I think what keeps me going is the fact that these are dangerous people. They're doing terrible things to society. They're oppressing the rights of so many people in so many ways. And something's got to be done about it, right? And the only way you can do something about it is to know what it is, be able to describe what it is, be able to document what it is, and then come up with strategies to confront it. And so that's really what keeps me going, because these are really horrible people who are doing untold damage to too many people, especially marginalized communities. And that's got to stop, right? So, you know, that's, that's why I can do the work. Well, and you've also had the benefit of talking to people who have come out of these movements as well. Like, it is possible 
for people to sort of wake up and make a different life for themselves. It is absolutely possible. I've talked to a lot of people over the years, sometimes who I'd interviewed at one point when they were actually involved in some skinhead group or neo-Nazi group, and then had an epiphany or an experience. I'll tell you, in almost every single case where I've talked to someone who's come out of these movements, it's because some person of color or someone who is Jewish actually reached out to them. And it caused them to all of a sudden have this like, what am I doing, right? I'm demonizing all these people. And, you know, it's like a light bulb goes on, which is interesting because that means there has been kindness by people who are actually oppressed by these extremist ideas and, and what they push for, who've reached out and actually sort of saved them, basically. And that's how they, they describe it. And they're certainly, you know, sort of not deserving of it from people like that who were the object of their hatred, I think there's some powerful stories um, like that. Uh, I know one of the leaders of Life After Hate, Angie King, she had an epiphany after she was arrested and went to jail for, I think, a robbery. She's talked about it many times. And she made, met some Jamaican women in jail. They were her cellmates and they transformed her. And so those stories are there. And actually, if we were a little more intentional as a society in providing programs and, and mental health assistance and psychological stuff, there's a lot of people we could change. We don't have much in this country where if you're starting to have doubts about being involved in this kind of stuff that you can pick up the phone and call like you could if you were you know, worried about suicide or drug addiction or other issues that people have. But that doesn't really exist here and it probably should. Bringing the story back to you, I would love to hear more about how you identify, do you consider yourself a feminist and is feminism part of your relationship with this larger body of work that you have related to anti-extremism? Yeah, I've always thought I was a feminist, <laughs> like all the way back to childhood. You know, and I know the term has come under attack. I can still remember Pat Buchanan raging about feminazis back in the 1990s, but I'm not sure why it is that, that there would be any negative connotation whatsoever for women having agency and being able to do the things that they want. Amen. Yeah, right? I mean, isn't that how it should be? And everybody should support that because it only makes society a better place when all people get to have that agency, wherever they're coming from. So I've never understood this crazy thing. Of course, you know, people like Rush Limbaugh saying feminazi, Pappy Cannon attacking feminists, this is all because misogyny is coursing through the Republican Party even more today than it did in the 90s when these attacks started. But unfortunately, that that is the reality today. And so anyhow, yes, a feminist, absolutely. Do you feel like working in this field has changed your feminism at all? Are there any kind of moments when you, you sort of found that part of you sort of growing or getting stronger? Yeah, I would say that every time that I see all this misogyny and get angry, it makes me feel more and more sort of empowered in that way, more in the frame of thinking that way. And, and of course, if you're a woman and you're looking at people who in so many ways want to impress other people, including women, it makes you realize all the more the value of not having that oppression and having that agency and being able to do what's right. The last thing Heidi said really made me think about myself as a white woman and someone who embodies, at least by outward appearances, the qualities that these far-right groups might claim to revere and protect. 
and how in some ways that elevates my responsibility to do what's right, as she says. I don't mean just in terms of countering white nationalism or other anti-democratic groups, which I think we can all agree should be a concern for everyone, but as we've talked about on this show many times, it's also on me and women and especially feminists like me to think very honestly about the role that white women played, not just in supporting and upholding white nationalism, but also white supremacy more broadly the systemic cultural white supremacy I spoke about at the beginning of the show. One of the best articles I've read on this subject is called White Women Were Colonizers Too by Ruby Hamad, in which she talked about the fact that, just like Heidi said, these women were instrumental in keeping things moving behind the scenes while their husbands and fathers were out there committing atrocities. And yes, these women had significantly less agency than most women have now, but they are part of that story, and we are the continuation of that story. And if we're going to talk about a racial reckoning in this country, being honest and nuanced and educated about that subject has to be part of the conversation. Ruby Hamad also has a new-ish book called White Tears, Brown Scars on this subject, and I will link both the book and the article in the show notes. A huge thank you to Heidi for joining me on the show and to all of you for listening. I know it's a tough topic, but I'm so glad you were here. And if you like the show and you'd like to support it, I hope you'll find Feminist Hot Dog on Patreon and consider becoming a supporter. And if that's out of reach for you, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts is always appreciated. Our theme music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music. As always, listeners, thanks for being here. Love yourself. Love your buns. Goodbye. This is Loudspeaker.